Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Yeah, it's potentially one of the most important sites in North America. It's possibly one of the oldest and largest constructions of its type. This is the biggest complex within a given area, say, of about 110 acres. It would really change the history books or prehistory books, if you will. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. They call it America Stonehenge. It's a weird one-acre grouping of rock uh, configurations named for the mysterious formation on England's Salisbury Plain. It's drawn believers who say it's thousands or more years old and skeptics who say the evidence suggests it was the work of a 19th century shoemaker. Dennis Stone grew up at America Stonehenge and has been involved with the site for the last 55 years and has met a variety of researchers. He's also a full-time airline captain. He's traveled extensively around the world to other ancient sites in Europe and North America. He's been on numerous television and radio shows since 1970. And when he's not flying, Dennis spends his time at America's Stonehenge, where his wife, Pat, manages the day-to-day operations of the site. Uh, Their son, Kelsey, who as an engineer has taken an interest in ongoing research. Dennis Stone, how are you? 
Oh, fine. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me on. You're down in Salem, New Hampshire. They call it America Stonehenge, but it really it bears virtually no resemblance to this, the great Stonehenge that we think of on the Salisbury Plain in England. How did it get the name America Stonehenge? So it goes back to uh, 1959. It was the second year that we were open to the public. And the Saturday evening posted a feature story on us um, for the month, I think of June, I think it was. We still have the original uh, uh, magazine. And in the article, they referred to us as Stonehenge of America because of the very large slabs of stone that was used in the construction. Um, but it wasn't until 1967 that we actually began work on the astronomical alignments. And that really what, what really ties us together with Stonehenge is a function of the site. Uh, it's aligned astronomically with the sun, moon, and stars, uh, quite similar to Stonehenge in England, but the form is quite different than Stonehenge. That is correct. We'll, we'll, we'll get into how the uh, the equinox uh, aligned to the the, the big stones uh, on on the property, but let's sort of walk us through. Now these these are stones, unlike a stone circle, which is Stonehenge and others. These stones are kind of scattered throughout the property, right? Ex- just describe what it looks like. Yeah, it's a, it's a hill. It's about 360 feet above uh, sea level. And the main site is about one acre uh, that has a plaza. It has ramps. It has stone chambers. It has a whole network of underground storm drains that were built by the original builders. And it has um, um, a, a courtyard area also surrounded by stone structures. And these stone structures are built uh, with slabs of stone. They have stone roofs. And no mortar was used in the original construction, and so it's what we call dry stone construction. And the stones were actually uh, stripped from the bedrock. The bedrock does come up in layers. It is foliated. And um, the main site, we believe, was a ceremonial center, and it's surrounded by about 110 acres of land that contains stone walls, other structures, and uh, walls that actually have a shape of uh, kind of a serpentine shape to them and the standing stones that are astronomically aligned with the sun, moon, and stars. Um, we think it's ceremonial. We don't believe it's a habitat site. And it does have resemblances to many of the 50,000 megalithic sites that are located in Western Europe. So our site really does look like some of the stone structures in Western Europe, but not particularly like Stonehenge, which is actually very, very unique in its uh, shape, you know, the design of it. And the rocks, <clears throat> New Hampshire, of course, is the granite state. So I'm presuming yep. that these stones are granite? That's correct. Yeah, we are the granite state, and it is built out of granite. It has a lot of quartz in it. Uh, there's quartz crystal found on the hill and mica and feldspar, but it is a granite. Uh, the whole hilltop is basically bedrock. And 4,000 years ago, it was a pretty exposed bedrock. Today, there's forest and the soil on top of it. But it was a big bald hill, and they were able to uh, extract these stones by coring these large stones, some of them up to uh, 14 tons. And then they would transport them and then use them in the construction of the the structures. And this is a very controversial uh, site for some. Some anthropologists and archaeologists have weighed in and said this isn't that old. There's a a story that it was constructed by a shoemaker back in the 19th century. Can you tell, what is that story all about? Yeah, there's three basic uh, theories, if you will. Uh, The shoemaker one, people say he was a farmer, but he was a fifth generation shoemaker. built the site. The other one was Native Americans, and the third one would be old world people coming to the New World before the time of Columbus. But uh, the Patty family came. Um, they were 
five generations of shoemakers that came from England. Those are Richard, Peter, Seth, Seth, and Jonathan. Um, and um, it was the, um, the grandson of Peter, Seth Patty, who actually bought a piece of the hill, but that didn't really include the main site back in 1734. And 10 years later, he bought another section of the hill that included the site. Sometime after 1750, they built a house on a section of this main site. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, his son named Seth might have occupied the hilltop in that particular house. And then Jonathan, we talk a lot about Jonathan. And he had two sons and four daughters, and he's given a lot of credit. People think that he built it. But if you look at the site, it looks nothing like a farm or like an early settlement. Um, I've lived on a farm up in Vermont for three years, and I was surrounded by farms when I grew up in Derry, New Hampshire, and they look nothing like this construction. And there's no tool marks on the original quarried stones. So the stones are actually extracted from the bedrock, and then they were shaped or dressed using a technique called percussion flaking. It's been described as making an uh, arrowhead, but on a multi-ton sca- uh, scale. So they're actually striking the stone with stone to shape it, and then they use these for roof slabs, wall slabs, uh, a stone we call a sacrificial table that weighs 9,000 pounds, and then all the stones that are part of the drainage system. Uh, and there's carvings on the site, too, uh, carvings to the bedrock for drainage, as well as carvings of, like, a deer carving, an arrow carving, and there's been some other carvings that have been attributed to uh, old-world inscriptions like Phoenician, Libyan, and Celtic. Um, but so I don't think it's a historic site or a colonial or post-colonial site. I think it's a very ancient ceremonial site. And, again, it does have some very strong resemblance to Western European sites, but it's only one site out of about 800 uh, from... Uh, say, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia going down into the mid-Atlantic states. And a site can consist of one chamber, or as in a case in Stonington, Connecticut, there's a lot of structures that look like our site, but there are 8,000 features in that one town of uh, Stonington. And that's something kind of new to us. We only learned to uh, that particular site about two years ago. So 8,000 features, chambers, 400 serpentine walls, standing stones that align with the sun, moon, and stars, Perk stones, balance stones, rocking stones, um, and again, uh, even windows, beautiful stone windows built in the stone walls uh, with lintels in them. It's kind of hard to describe it. If you have a stone wall and you have these beautiful windows in it, you know, what purpose would that serve for a shoemaker? And we have 11 of them on our site. Uh, we just discovered those in the last year, actually, so it's a relatively new find. We think the spirit windows are soul holes, as they call them. Uh, Martha's Vineyard even has them down in Cape Cod. The saint has some structures and some of these, these windows in the walls. And but they would serve no purpose for a farmer or a shoemaker, actually. Right. Uh, and for, for, th- for those who subscribe to the idea that, that this is, uh, would be a hoax if it was built by, uh, this, the shoemaker, wouldn't, um, you know, wouldn't they be able to, to carbon date it? Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't there be a, a paper trail, maybe some mention of it made, uh, you know, in a local newspaper or something? There must be way, a, a way of, of pinpointing or, let's say, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm struggling here, sorry. There must be a way, uh, to, to verify whether that place, that, that, that stone uh, artifact was there um, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Yeah, exactly. And, and we, um, yeah, we have done a lot of research, and that research began 80 years ago in 1937 by a gentleman named Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Pearson and William Goodwin. 
And um, they worked on the site. Uh, they basically cleaned a lot of the brush and a lot of debris, and then they began excavating and doing some restoration of some of the structures. But, yes, there should be a way of uh, – I mean, there's no historical uh, record of Patty family and all the shoemakers building this. And if, when Patty uh, inherited the land in 1802 from his mother, his father had passed away. He was actually involved with the Revolutionary War, Seth Jr., and he died around 17, I think 1778 roughly. And about 20, uh, about 24 years later, he inherits a site. And a lot of people think Jonathan is the one that built the whole site. But, you know, why would a shoemaker or even if and he had uh, domesticated animals, we know from his tax record, why would anybody spend the time building anything that would take years to quarry the stones and build these structures, which really no, would serve no purpose for a shoemaker or for a farmer, in fact, you know, anything like that. And it doesn't resemble any colonial or post-colonial construction. But uh, back in the 1930s, there was a stump next to a chamber, and it was rotted. And they estimated its age something like 1650 or something like that. 1967, they were actually found, they found a piece of root that had grown through the north wall of the structure we call the chamber in ruins. And it was carbon dated to 1690. So that put it, puts it back about uh, 50 years before the Patty family even arrived on the hill. And so you don't build a structure around the tree. The tree grows through the structure. So this piece of root was dated uh, to 1690 A.D. In 1969, they were excavating in that same area, but they went down lower. They went down about 30 inches, and they found the strata, the various layers of soil undisturbed next to this wall. And they eventually uh, they found charcoal, and the charcoal was sent to Geochrome Laboratories in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the result came back that was about 3,000 years old. Um, in 1971, they excavated further uh, in a little bit lower level, and they found more charcoal, and they dated that to almost 4,000 years old, plus or minus about 200 years. Below that, they found the bedrock had been quarried, just as we suspected. They were lifting up layers of bedrock. So the first thing that happened was the bedrock was extracted from that area, then the wall was built, and the chamber was you know, constructed with its roof and everything, and then soil very slowly deposited there. And in that mix of charcoal, they found a hammerstone, a rubbing stone, a stone scraper, and little stone spallings. When you uh, strike these stones to shape them or dress them, you get little flakes of stone that come off, again, like shaping an arrowhead or a spear point and in that percussion flaking technique. And they found all those little flakes of stone all in that undisturbed, you know, um, all the stratigraphy was still there. There was no mixing of soil. Nobody had disturbed it. And so they were able to show that the quarrying took place first, the wall was built, and then the soil deposited. And then we have these two charcoal samples from two different eras. And then we have stone tools that are in that mix, too. And we did actually about uh, 12 carbon dating. So we did three in that area, and then we did nine more in different areas of the site. But the oldest on the main site was about 4,000 years old, and that was 1971. Um, so we have stone tools, utensils, you know. Um, we also have the carbon datings, and then 1973 to 1978, we surveyed the site, the professional surveyor. They were doing the astronomical alignments in the walls, and that data was sent to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the results came back 40 years ago this year, in 1978, and they said if these stones are used for astronomical purposes, they would work about 1800 B.C., plus or minus about 200 years uh, but they don't quite work today because your tilt is very slowly changing. They call it the obliquity. It's the angle between the Earth's tilt and its orbital plane around the sun. 
So that's a 41,000-year cycle, and then you have precession, which is 26,000 years, and that changes the pole star and the seasons, actually. So the carbon dating of 1971 and seven years later, 1978, uh, the astronomical date, they both put it back to, but they agree, about 4,000 years old. Right, about 2,000 B.C. How did you become curator? Yeah, uh, well, through my dad. My dad actually first got involved with this from 19... 55, it was a radio show, just like we're doing right now. And he had never heard of this place. He lived about eight miles away. And um, in 1950 to about 1953, he was up in Canada, actually, up in Newfoundland, where he was in the Coast Guard. And he was right near where the Vikings, uh, not too far from the Vikings uh, settlement is in Lonzo Meadow. He was always interested in the ancient past. And unfortunately, he was here a little bit too early because it wasn't until 1960 that they actually showed that the Vikings had indeed, you know, had a settlement up in the uh, in northern part of uh, Newfoundland. And um, so he was always interested in that, and he's listening to the show on a Friday night. It was called Yankee Yarns. Alton Hall Blackington was a talk show host. And instead of talking about politics or something like that, they were talking about this ancient site located in North Salem, New Hampshire. And it was kind of a surprise for him. And so it was probably, a, you know, an hour or two-hour show and really get his interest. Uh, the following week, he's at a barbershop waiting to have his hair cut. And he's looking at a magazine, and he's opened, and it's called New Hampshire Profile Magazine. It was from 1952. It had been sitting in the body shop for three years, I guess. And he's just flipping through it. He sees a feature article all about these same stone ruins that he just heard on the radio show. Uh, the next weekend, he's at my aunt and uncle's house, and they were over there uh, just socializing, playing cards with about maybe a dozen people. And he put the magazine on the counter and said, anybody ever hear of this place, you know? And Because he was really taken by it. And everybody looked at it, following me on an uncle uh, looked at it and said, yeah, that place is where he went 20 years ago in the 1930s. We used to go down there on our bicycles and picnic. It was when my aunt and uncle were dating. And my dad says, do you think you can find it? And they said, well, it's been quite a while, but maybe we can. So I think the following Sunday they went down there and they were able to find an old back road. And uh, eventually they found a way to the top of the hill in the site. And uh, my dad, you know, climbed underneath the chain link fence. They were basically trespassing. And he spent time inside the site. Uh, the, the other three, my aunt and uncle and my mom, just kind of stood outside because it was the fence was kind of uh, all locked up. And my dad came out a while later, and uh, he was just totally taken by the place. And he said, someday I'd like to uh, maybe own this place, open it to the public, and, you know, do some research on it. So it all began in 1955. And this year, we're going to have our 60th anniversary when we open to the public. Uh, solstice, uh, June 20th or 21st of 1958. So, so then that was the first generation. I'm the second. And my son, Kelsey, he's kind of the third generation. My dad and son are both engineers. I was in the airlines for 35 years. So we all have full-time jobs. We do this kind of out of a passion for it, basically, on the side. So prior to your father <laughs> buying the property and then opening it to the public several years later, it was just sitting mm. idly. One would think that it would have been declared, I don't know, a United Nations heritage site or, or something. Why was it basically lost to the public for so long? Yeah, fortunately, um, you know, history in, in our country, you know, is not taught too well anyway. I think it was taught better years ago than it is today. But um, because of the controversy, as you mentioned earlier, there was a lot of people that said, oh, it's just a bunch of rocks on a hill. Maybe Patty family built it. You know, maybe uh, Native Americans built it. But it should have got a lot more interest. You know, I mean, who spends time building this whole kind of, for what? You know, 
uh, <clears throat> some people call it a folly, you know, patties back in the 18, you know, 1840s, you know, 1830s. Why would they build something like this to open it up to the public as a tourist trap or something? There was no such thing back then, you know. I mean, tourism really didn't begin until, like, the Cod Railway went in in 1869 in New Hampshire. You know, that's when tourism kind of started. So in this area, there was no tourism, you know. So who who were they trying to fool by building this? I have no clue. But people were very practical back then. They were just trying to make a living. The Patty family, he was a shoemaker. He took a, he actually took in the town paupers for a few years. The town, the poor people for about six years, we had the names of the poor people. He tried to supplement this income, and he was a tax collector for the town of Salem for a short period of time also. They were just trying to make a living, you know, um, support their family. So it's easy to say, oh, the Patty family had nothing better to do than build these thousands and thousands of feet of walls plus all these stone structures, you know. But you're right. It, uh, actually, in the 1950s, there was a, a group called the Early Sites Foundation, and that's one of the that group was formed because of our site. And they actually were doing archaeology on the site in the mid 1950s when my dad first visited it. And going back to the 1930s, it was Mr. Goodwin who actually started the archaeology here. And then he died in 1950. He willed the site to Malcolm Pearson, one of the founding members of the Early Sites Foundation. And that group is one of the groups that was uh, that helped discover that site up in Canada at Lonzo Meadow. There was a husband and wife team, and then there was a National Geographic, but there was also the Early Sites Foundation, and one of the sons that went up there uh, with his father, with his group, to look at Lonzo Meadow, he actually found a little stone world uh, for spinning wool. And so he was, that little artifact is one of the artifacts that helped prove the Vikings are there, but you don't hear much about the Early Sites Foundation. That lasted for 10 years, and they did work on our site and about 15 other sites in New England that might be related to our site. They folded in 1964. They had members from Dartmouth College and from, I think, a couple other universities that were founding members. And when they passed, some of these members passed away. Like in 63, they lost a number of their members from, you know, they passed away. And then they decided to fold the group up. And my dad and Ed Boyd in 1964 started the New England Antiquities Research Association, which is now going has been going strong for about 44 years. That's the group. They have members. Their president was Terry DeVoe. He recently, uh, uh, he's from Halifax, Canada. He's the first Canadian president. And so they're all over New England, Canada, and everywhere. So they're still doing research on these sites, including ours. Is there any possible connection between Lanzo Meadow, this Viking settlement in in Newfoundland, and the artifact on, on Mystery Hill? Could it be a Viking settlement? That's a great question. And Mr. Goodwin, when he came here in 1937, and he put up the chain link fence, he bought 20 acres of the property. Today we have about 110, but he bought just the top pot and the main site. He thought it was a Viking site, and he wrote uh, a couple different books. Uh, one was called The Truth About Lee Erickson, very interesting book. And then he, before he died, he put together a second book called The Ruins of Great Ireland and New England. He, he changed his mind very quickly from the Vikings because when he started uncovering the site, they weren't sawed houses. These were all stone structures with stone roofs, you know. And he decided it wasn't a Viking settlement, but he said, I think it's an Irish Colding Monk monastery, and it was built here. It was a refuge from the Vikings uh, going all over Europe, Lisbon, particularly Ireland. And these people were refugees from that coming into America, and they were trying to um, have, you know, religious freedom and to kind of escape the Viking persecution. And some of the Viking sagas actually talk about uh, white-robed 
men found, I think, in the Faroe Islands and then going across Iceland, Greenland, and to the Baffin Islands and into the New World. So everywhere the Vikings went, they mentioned these white robed men. And so Goodwin thought it wasn't Viking after he initially did, but he thought it might be an Irish clothing monk monastery. And he knew of about 15 different sites in New England. And he thought these might be places where these people were praying and they might have been, you know, uh, involved in Native Americans too. But it really doesn't look like a Viking settlement. And the dating now puts it back about 3,000 years older than the Lonzo Meadow. And they just found that second Viking site up in Canada, I think last year, Point Rosie. They think that's the second Viking settlement in Newfoundland. And there's one in Baffin Islands, they believe, too, that was a boat repair station. So the Vikings are very interesting to us. But I think it's not a Viking settlement. I think it's a much older site. Right. And, well, since um, the Vikings yep, were yep. sort of marauding and pillaging around, I think, the ninth century, that would eliminate the possibility that these are Irish monk refugees fleeing the Vikings. But because of the similarity with other stone artifacts in Western Europe, what are the other possibilities? If we're going back 2000 B.C., and there is a similarity to these stone formations in, in Western Europe. What other culture, what other civilization might it be? Well, I've been throughout quite a few places in Europe, and I've seen a lot of the similarities. Um, the megalithic builders of Europe, starting in the, the Neolithic, going into the Bronze Age, and then by the time of the Iron Age, they really kind of stopped building these uh, some of these 50,000 megalithic sites, you know, and then they began building a lot of forts. Um, but, um, our, I mean, it's... The, the type of writing that's been found um, in North, Central, and South America, Old World, uh, mockings seem to be Phoenician, Libyan, and Celtic mockings. And we have all three that have been found on our site, according to Dr. Barry Fell from Harvard University. And he was a president of the Epigraphic Society. I think he had about 1,200 members. He was at Harvard University for about 20 years, originally from New Zealand, uh, went to school in England, and ended up in, Amer- in North America at, at Harvard. And he felt that... Um, these people coming across from the Iberian Peninsula because of the similarity in the structures and also the inscriptions. Um, the, uh, the type of inscription kind of matches the Iberic inscriptions more than, like the Phoenicians came out of the Middle East, the Phoenician coast, but they migrated across the Mediterranean and set up 50, 50 trading colonies, you know, um, in Sicily, right across, you know, Malta, Beer uh, and um, Carthage is one of them and they're in Spain and in the west coast of Africa. And he thought they were coming over from Spain and Portugal and part of, I guess, southern France, possibly, into North America. And he said the style of script is what I can, you know, that it exists over in Spain and Portugal. At our site, we found the, he said it was Libyan, Phoenician, and Celtic that was found on our site. You've uh, seen writing on the wall carved into the yeah, stone wall? Actually, yeah, actually, yeah. There's um, the uh, Chamber Ruins back in 1964. They were doing some... Um, they're trying to do some the big roof slab that weighs about seven or eight thousand pounds fell into the structure and it's it's kind of blocking the floor and anything under. So in sixty four they're gonna to try to get the stone out of there and kind of restore the walls and maybe put the roof back on. They didn't accomplish that. But when they were cleaning the uh around that big slab that fell into the and the lintel stone fell in also, it's about a thousand pound lintel stone that collapsed in there. Uh well they're in there cleaning, trying to prepare it for restoration, they found um three stones. They were kind of a triangular shape, and they were put on display in our museum back in 64. One was found in 67, so two in 64, one in 67, and they were put on display as unknown markings, and Barry Fell first visited the site in 1975, and he 
he took these stones back to Arlington, Massachusetts, where he lived, and he worked on trying to decipher them. And his translation was one of them was Iberian Punic, and it said this this uh, structure was a temple dedicated to Baal on behalf of the Canaanites. The other inscription was Libyan, but it was only a partial translation because the stone was damaged. And then the third one appears to be some sort of just um, artwork on a stone. He said it looks Western European. So that was his, his interpretation. The Celtic Olgum was found at a later date, but it's found in Vermont. It's found all the way from um, Little Manana Island near Monhegan Island, which is close to Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, all the way down to Brazil. There's a stone down there found in 1872 by some slaves who were actually doing some work, and they found a stone. It's called the Paraheba Stone, and it's it, and that's been translated as Phoenician. So all the way from Brazil, all the way up to Maine, and then west. I'm trying to think how far west. I think almost out to the west coast they have found Libyan, uh, Celtic, and Phoenician markings. So we either have a lot of misinterpretations, we have a lot of stones that are hoaxes, or we have people visiting from the old world to the new world you know, coming across the Atlantic Ocean uh, well before Columbus or the Vikings. Dennis, stay put. Right back with more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tis the season to give the perfect gift. C60 Evo organic oil elixirs and facial serum sets. And uh, here with a, uh, a tip on how to get a proper night's rest is the co-founder and chief scientist of C60 Evo, Chris Burroughs. Chris, welcome back. How are you? Richard, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I just want to share one of the tips. I've got a number of them, but one of the tips for getting a good night's sleep is related to naps, right? So we're all interested in naps. Um, and, and the reality is if you're foregoing naps, you probably shouldn't. The data is really clear. You should be taking naps. Uh, just a couple things that you need to be mindful of when you take a nap. Uh, one of them is don't take naps after four right? Because that can tend to interrupt your circadian rhythm. And that's the rhythm that gives your sleep cycle in tune with the rising and falling of the sun. So taking a nap after four can interrupt that and can have a negative impact on your sleep. And then the next thing is keep your nap. Optimal time is about 20 minutes. If so, if you're about to take a nap and maybe you're really tired, one, don't do it after four. And two, make sure you set that alarm clock. Maybe you give yourself 30 minutes, but we've all had the experience of taking a nap and waking up like 10 times groggier than when than we were when we went to sleep. Uh, so keep those naps short and keep them before four. I like to share these kind of sleep ideas with people because one, I love to deliver value. Uh, and two, it's actually our most consistent testimonial with our product, C60 Evo, is people take it in the morning. They report mental focus and energy during the day and then better sleep that night. Absolutely. I always take my, I call it the grandpa nap, but uh, I wake up, I don't feel like a grandpa and I'm not a grandpa. So absolutely uh, getting a, a good afternoon or early afternoon nap is, is key. Gets you going through the rest of the day. C60 Evo products deliver noticeable benefits to people and pets around the world. Immunity boost, Deeper sleep, just like Chris said, more energy, mental balance, flexibility, and longevity. And don't forget 
uh, visit the website. That's c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. c60evo.com hyphen c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. And uh, use the code EVRS, EVRS at checkout, and you save an extra 10%. Chris, we'll talk again next week. Thank you. In another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was, what, what a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Dennis Stone is with us. He is the curator of Mystery Hill, which is in uh, Salem, New Hampshire. If you ever get down that way, make sure you, you stop by. Uh, it, um, it houses or it contains uh, a tremendous uh, artifact known as America's Stonehenge. And uh, there is some controversy, controversy as to who built it uh, and how old it is. But then again, there's great controversy about who built the actual Stonehenge and actually how old that is. So uh, I guess in that respect, it, it mirrors Stonehenge uh, in, in several ways. You were talking about writing uh, or inscriptions um, carved into the stone. And of course, we're talking about granite. Uh, one of them... Uh, one of them was deciphered or translated as sort of a dedication to the temple, to, uh, or this is this location is a temple to Baal, um, who was of course uh, worshipped by the Canaanites. Do you think that's a hoax? I, I don't know. I think I mean you know who would have done that? You know the Patty, the shoemaker, you know, or his father or his grandfather, you know, uh, up here making Libyan, Phoenician, and you know Celtic mockings up here. I don't think so, you know. Um, and the uh, the letters do look correct, you know. Uh, and at that time, back in the uh, 1800s, and they came here, like I said, in the late 17 and 1700s, the Patty family, you know, some of these were not translatable. They hadn't, people hadn't translated this yet, you know. Uh, so how would they be able to put together a sentence without knowing how to write the script, you know, back in the late 1700s or early 1800s? And there is technology today. They can look at these mockings with scanning electron microscopes. They can look at the weathering patterns and the, you know, with the actual, you know, where they actually carve the mockings. They look at like uh, micas, biotites, uh, pyrites, and they can look at, you know, under high magnification, they can see the weathering patterns and they can tell you, look, this, this has been, um, you know, inscribed, there's a lot of weathering here. It's been centuries upon centuries, you know, not 200 years or whatever, but, you know, they can't give you an exact amount, but they can tell you whether it was done recently as a hoax or whether it was been sitting there for maybe a few thousand years. And so this is kind of a new technology. Um, and also there's a way of dating soil next to stone walls, whether it's a structure or just a stone wall. It's called optically stimulated luminescence. You don't need charcoal. Uh, so when you do carbon, then you got to find the charcoal first. Hopefully it's undisturbed soil, and, you know, in the right location next to a wall like we did. But it, all you have to do is find dirt, and the dirt has to be undisturbed, and hopefully it's many inches deep, and you get a core down near the bottom, and they can put it through all this different process, and, and then they use lasers, and they can tell you when that soil saw the light of day, you know, how many years ago. So if a wall was built a few thousand years ago and they get down near the bottom of it and nothing's ever disturbed that soil, they can say, look, this soil, the last time I saw the light of day was 3,000 years ago or whatever date it is, so it was not built 200 or 300 years ago. So this new technology may be very useful because we have thousands of feet of wall if we find the right place. You know, the negative side of it is 
$1,000 per sample. I think. Oh, my. And you have to have several baseline. So they did the Upton Chamber, which is a chamber that Malcolm Pearson Stanley bought in 1920s. That, that's how he got involved with this. It's in Upton, Massachusetts. It looks like a passage grave of Europe. And they did, in uh, 2011, they did uh, some testing on it. Some of our own our people that work on our site were down there doing it. And the date came back. And the skeptic sale was built two or three hundred years ago as a root cellar or, you know, some colonial, post-colonial construction. It's not more than two or three hundred years old. And the date came back on it, and the minimum date on it from the six different cores uh, they, they took and sent to a laboratory, and it was several thousand dollars, was around, I'm going to say around 1450, just before Columbus. So it wasn't, you know, built in 1800 or 1700. Sometime in 1400 makes it pre- and it was earlier than that that it was built. That's like a minimum date. So sometime before Columbus, somebody was building the Upton Chamber. So it's not something that's colonial or post-colonial, as all these skeptics say. You know? It's remarkable. But, but if it was built by the Canaanites as a temple to Baal, I mean, this would have to be considered one of the greatest archaeological finds in America, I would think. It's been called that. Yeah, it's potentially one of the most important sites in North America. It's possibly one of the oldest and largest constructions of its type. But as I mentioned earlier in the show, there's probably about 800 sites throughout the Northeast. But this is the biggest complex within a given area, say, of about 110 acres. And you're right, it could be, it would really change the history books or prehistory books, if you will. Do people need to register to um, a reserve a place to come to see the artifact or do they just show up? No, we never really get that busy. Uh, on the summer solstice, though, one year, we about 15 years ago, we had the Travel Channel here filming, and we had a, uh, music of uh, the Andes, Inca Sun playing, and about a 1,000 people, but even then, we didn't need reservations. Um, but it's uh, the website is StonehengeUSA.com, and it has a lot of different information. It has an email that you know, people can ask us questions and a phone number to call us if necessary. And it lists some of the activities, as you mentioned, some of the astronomical alignments coming up. And in the winter, we do snowshoeing, you know, events and stuff like that. So, so it's StonehengeUSA.com if, if you're interested in looking at that. And it has uh, quite a bit of information on that website. All right. So let's talk about, again, the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were, If it was the Canaanites who built this temple to Baal, which... Uh, I guess from a, a Christian perspective, Baal would be Satan, uh, would be a sort of a demonic uh, entity or a deity. Uh, the sacrificial table, what do you think was taking place there then? Yeah, that's a million-dollar question. It, it's about uh, The table is approximately nine feet by six feet and about a foot thick. It was moved about 40 feet from its quarry socket. No metal tool markings are in the quarry socket or on the stone, which is very important. So, again, it demonstrates it was a Stone Age technology used to extract it and shape it. It has a groove that looks rectangular. And two, two years ago, I thought it was a rectangle. Uh, but actually, it's trapezoidal in shape. Uh, the groove is very deep. Um, it's not shallow. Some people have said that this table could be a wine press, you know, or a cider press, or a, um, a limestone for making soap. A limestone usually about 36 inches across, 40 inches, um, about an inch thick, and I could actually pick one up. But this table is about 9,000 pounds, and I can't pick that up. Uh, a cider press can be bigger, but usually made out of wood, and usually have all sorts of metal, you know, metal and wood, like the, the screw and everything, to help squeeze the apples. And this table is set down between what we call the oracle chamber, which is the biggest structure on the site, and the ramp, and then there's two monoliths on either side of the table, you cannot get a wagon with a horse down there bringing down the apples and then crush them 
and take out the product, you know, you can't get an animal. I can just barely get my little ATV in there to get the leaves out each fall when we're trying to clean the place. But you can't get a wagon in there, and you can't take away all the pulp or whatever it is when you squeeze apples. And there's no archaeological evidence. But that's been one of the one of the arguments. Oh, it's a cider press, you know. But there's no archaeology and there's no history whatsoever associating this stone with with a cider press or a live stone for making soap like the ivory soap factory. Uh, the oracle chamber is attached to it with this horizontal tube that's six feet long. And it reminds me of what I saw in, in uh, Delphi in Greece when I went there on a honeymoon back in 85. And then we went to Malta about 20 years ago, and they had the same thing. The oracle tubes were a priest or a shaman would yell through this tube. People would hear this voice, and, you know, they think a spirit or, or somebody talking to them, you know, like a whatever, you know, uh, speaking to them. And that's the way this arrangement is. Um, the table is large enough for a person or an animal. It, it's sitting on four legs. And um, there is a stone about 75 miles uh, southwest of here down in uh, Shutesbury, Mass. And it has stone chambers somewhat like our site, not as big, though. And it looks like a person on the same bell shape. Our table is actually a bell shape to it. And it looks like a person stretched out on it and laying on the back with kind of like a, something around their neck. It's a raised, it's a raised carving or an anaglyph or what they call a carving and relief kind of, and it has a circle by the left leg, and that's exactly where that runoff is on our groove. Our groove is kind of, it's actually trapezoidal shape and has a little runoff, and if you lay it on your back on that table by your left leg right below the ground, there's a cutout in the bedrock where like a vase could sit to collect the fluid, if you will. And that, that, stone, that stone shape has been used for the New Moran Keeper Research Association's logo, so if you go to nira.org, you'll see that logo. It looks like somebody visited our site, went back home 75 miles, and they actually carved this maybe as kind of a memorial to what they saw up on this site. It's, it maybe sounds a little far-fetched, but it looks exactly like our table, and it looks like somebody on our table on this particular carving, you know. Well, if it was a temple to yep. Baal, there's, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't be unusual to expect human sacrifice to have taken place there. They did. They did. They sacrificed a lot of children, and they did yes. also adults, too. Yes. At some of the 50 different cities, Tyr, Sidons, you know, and then right across Carthage, right into the western part of Africa, they were doing sacrifice. They kind of gruesome, and sometimes they sacrificed a couple thousand I think I read one place they sacrificed 3,000 people when Hiram, Hiram of Tyr died in Tyr. Mm. 3,000 people were sacrificed, and I went, oh, my God, you know. So yes. they did do sacrifice, so that's not a question, you know. But did they do it over here, and is this site something that they built, you know? Well, that's the question, you know. One would mm. expect also then to find, if mm. this was an active temple or whatever it was, one mm-hmm. would expect to mm-hmm. find, I don't know, skeletal remains, clay pots, something to indicate that this place was inhabited. Have you found we anything? We have found ceramics. Yeah, ceramics have been found here and beautiful, you know, mostly pottery shards or fragments. But some of it looks Western European, the corded ware or the groove ware. And a couple of our archaeologists looked at it and said, this looks very much like some of the grooved ware of Western Europe. Um, but... Bones, in our soil here is very acidic in New England, and bones usually dissolve back into the soil after just a few hundred years. Uh, I know our uh, president of the Hampshire Archaeological Society has been with us since 1989, and she goes, yeah, in New England, no, you might find bones sometimes until a couple thousand years old, but that's rather unusual. Most of the bones will, you know, decay because of the acid in the soil and the weathering conditions. They don't last long. But if Mr. Goodwin, 80 years ago, didn't clean out some of these structures so thoroughly, they could actually get in there today 
take that soil, send it to a laboratory and look at the chemical traces, maybe like calcium, potassium, and some other chemicals, that might say, like the east-west chamber looks like the gallery graves in Europe. They're found in Holland, they're found in northwest Ireland, and they're also in France, which I saw. They always run east and west, just like our chamber, 20 to 60 feet length, and it's out of true north, and they're used as burial tombs. Aviha uh, uh, looks like the wedge tombs of Ireland and also in Spain, and they're all facing southwest. Well, the V-hut at our, our site faces southwest. It's the only structure that faces that direction, and the shape of it is like a wedge. And they were used as tombs in Ireland. I visited those, and I took a picture with my dad. Said, this looks just like our V-hut, the same shape, the same size, and the same orientation. Ireland, by the way, has about 2,000 megalithic sites, so there's, you, know, you can hmm. spend quite a bit of time. I spent a week there looking at many of them. But, uh, and then there's other structures on the site that resemble some of the ones in Europe that are used as tombs. But the problem here is, the conditions aren't good for preserving bones. They, they dissolve, they go back into the earth, and if Mr. Goodwin hadn't removed that soil 80 years ago, the technology today, we probably, you know, on the sacrificial table, if it was used for that, there's a thing called protein analysis. And if you have a spear point or an arrow, and it went into a person or animal and blooded into a microfissure in that, in that weapon, or maybe in the sacrificial table, a microfissure, they can extract that material and it can go back 10,000 years, and they can tell you whether it's human or animal, and then the type of animal. So I always wondered, is there something on that table, even though it's been weathered maybe perhaps thousands of years, if there was a sacrifice 4,000 years ago on it, it's been under heavy weather, so you know it kind of erases some of the evidence. Right. But if they could get into a fissure in that that stone, they'd have to know where to look. You know, there's a lot of little cracks on that on the top of that sacrificial table, send that to a laboratory, and if there's any material in there, they could tell you, yes, it was used for sacrifice, or no, we don't have any evidence. So there is technology today for that, too, which is which is kind of neat. You know? It is. It's fascinating. <clears throat> uh, we just have a few minutes. So talk to me about these uh, standing stones that align mm-hmm. with, is it the summer equinox or is it the autumnal equinox? It's both. It's actually the summer solstice, winter solstice, spring and fall equinox. They're called the quarter days. But we also have the cross-quarter days. Those are the days in between. On both sides of the Atlantic, whether it's Native American or Old World, May Day, uh, you know, May Day, Beltane, uh, we used to have the May Fairs. Then you have August 1st, which is Loch Ness, or I believe it's called. Um, it, it's Old Norwegian Holiday, and it's Lamas, I think they call it. But we all know about the next one, which is um, November 1st, All Saints Day, the day before is Halloween. That's a Celt- These are all Celtic holidays, by the way, but they're also at sites like Mesa Verde in Colorado. And then February 1st is um, Candlemas on the Catholic holiday, but it's also near Groundhog's Day, and it's called Imblod. So those are the days that the seasons actually begin, those cross-quarter days. And we have the sunrise and set over those. We have the sunrise and sunset over the spring and fall equinox and the winter solstice, summer solstice. We also have the 18-and-a-half-year lunar cycle, um, so the moon goes through a cycle over 18 and a half years. It's called the lunar major north and south, the lunar minor north and south. Stonehenge has that. A lot of people don't know that. Karnak in France has that. Many of the 50,000 megalithic sites in Europe, particularly some of the stone circles in Scotland, have that do track the lunar cycle. And a lot of ancient cultures use the, moons, the moon for a time instead of, the, you know, the year with the sun. But we have alignments with... Um, with stars. And in 1978, when we got that result back from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, they said, not only do alignments work about 1800 B.C. plus or minus about 200 years, but you have 23 star alignments. 
And we don't even, I'm sorry, 24. We know about the north wind, the true north wind with Polaris today and 4,000 years ago, the star was Thuban, and it's in Draco, which is the serpent. And we do have some serpentine walls on our site. We think we have about 12 serpentine walls shaped like snakes. But 4,000 years ago, back to about 6,000 years ago, the Earth's uh, north polar axis is pointed at Thuban, which is one of the stars of Draco, the dragon or serpent. And so that was where many people thought the spirit might go, you know, towards heaven. So that was a very important part of the uh, heavens. Right. So um, so we have star alignments, we have the sun alignments, and we have the moon alignments. And there's 26 alignments, not counting those star alignments. So some archaeologists and scholars said, oh, that's just a coincidence. So we got 26 ah. coincidences that work. About eight, you know what I mean? The equinoxes still work today, but the solstices and the lunar alignments won't work unless you go back about 1800 B.C., right. almost 4,000 years ago. Right. Well, now, so that's a coincidence, too. You know? Sure, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So, but did the Canaanites, uh, were they interested in the various star alignments and equinoxes? Would that be something they would incorporate into one of their temples to Baal? Yeah, they do. And I've just been reading a whole book of, uh, about, um, actually it's one of my dad's library, and I'm reading his whole library. He's got books from 1955. I mean, he's just tons of books, and one of them is all about the Phoenicians, and it talks about some of those 50 cities that they set up for trade and how they would set up alignments with the sun, you know, uh, sun god Baal, or Baal, or Belos they had, you know, and the Celts, actually, it was Bel. In the Canaanites or Phoenician was Baal, you know, it's in the Bible, as you mentioned, the same God, you know. Oh, the Celtics um, worship, did I didn't know the Celts worship yeah, Baal. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah, it's Baal, they call it Bel or, you know, Belos, you know, but it's the same God. Yeah, because we have the Celtic writing, it actually we do have, and one of the stones is Bel. It's one line down for Oakham and two lines, which is B, L, and you have to insert the vowel. They were, it was all consonants, no vowels in it. Just like the original Phoenician alphabet was 22 letters, it was all right. consonants, no vowels. It Den- was the, Ro- uh, the Greek Romans that changed that, you know? <laughs> right. Dennis, this, so. is, this is fascinating. People have to get to Salem, New Hampshire, yeah. to Mystery Hill, and, and check out yeah. America Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. What's the, the uh, highway that uh, goes through there? Yeah, uh, it's Route 93, goes from Boston right up into New Hampshire or Exit 3, so really easy out of Boston or out of Manchester, New Hampshire, both have good airports, or if you're driving down from Canada, probably down Route 93, Exit 3, and we're about four miles from the highway, so uh, very easy access, and the roads have been all redone out here, so it's it's easy to drive on them now. Well, people really need to come and see this place for themselves, because yeah. it's uh, yeah. it sounds remarkable, and all of this nonsense about a, a shoemaker building this in the in the 18th century, uh, yeah, that that makes no sense whatsoever. Dennis, thank you so much for sharing this with me. Well, thank you so much, Richard, and thank your audience. And I uh, hope everybody comes down and takes a look at it. And I'd like to see you come down sometime too. I used to go to Toronto all the time when I was flying. So, but um, thank you so much for having me on tonight. My pleasure, Dennis Stone, curator of America Stonehenge. And again, the website is StonehengeUSA.com. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.